Do you know how powerful you are? Welcome to the Risepreneurs Podcast. Welcome to Risepreneurs. Reshaping and elevating your mindset to help you achieve what you believe. Sometimes we don't even see our own greatness. You can't be what you can't see. And connecting black cultures to build a community of talent and success. Black people need to realize that they are assets. You are an asset. When we rise, you rise. Come together as a group. This is Risepreneurs with Terrell Simmons. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Risepreneurs. It's your host with the most, Terrell Simmons. want to thank you for joining us on another lovely day. This next guest that I have in the building, Daniela, she's the boss, UK, because I'm bossy. I don't know why that song comes to my head, but uh, I had a great time conversating with Daniela and all of her entrepreneurial journeys, her ups and downs, her highs and lows, the lessons that she's learned in life. You'll catch her on Instagram, spreading that big business energy, <laughs> as she always does. She's a business growth strategist. You know, she's found those tips and techniques that you really need to kind of accelerate your business and growth. And she's been able to do that successfully throughout the years from all the lessons that she's learned from her, her failures and turning those lessons into business strategies and growth opportunities for others and herself. So if you ever need support with growing your business and fine-tuning it, she's the person to go to in the UK. We also had a fun conversation too, just learning about the our, our different cultures, the community that she's a part of is half Nigerian, half Jamaican. So we had we, we had those debates on, you know, What's better? Is it is it the jollof rice or the rice and peas? So <laughs> I had a fun we had a fun little dialogue about that. But uh without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's get the meat. She's the boss, UK. So welcome to an episode of Rasponors. Now let's start off with this. Who is Daniela? And I know that's a deep question, but you could give me whatever version you want. You can take me down the the journey of becoming like Michelle Obama, or <laughs> you can start with the business version. Who is Daniela? So I'm I'm gonna give you the everything version. So Daniela is the mother to a five year old. I am a wife. I am a multi award winning entrepreneur and founder of She's the Boss International. I am a British born Jamaican of African ancestry, a lover of music and a lover of food. I would say that encompasses everything that is important to me and describes who I am. All right. Okay. So with all that food in the house, I, I imagine I grew up around Jamaica. So I grew up on a spice, bun and cheese, the curry goats, the rice and peas. And then I also had some Nigerian foods. You got the fufu and, and the pounded yam. Yeah. I must say your household must be, have a flavor palette like none other. Like what is what is a dinner yeah. like? Yeah. So my husband is Nigerian. Um, so I'm, a, I'm a, an adopted Nigerian. I also did my um, ancestry last year to determine that I am 47.7% Nigerian, which was quite an emotional experience, actually. Um, wow. Yeah, because all of this, all of the time that I've been with my husband, he's always said, I think that you're you're probably Nigerian. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I think I'm Ghanaian, actually. Um, but it turns out I'm mostly Nigerian with a bit of uh, Kenyan and Sierra Leonean mixed into that. But I identify, obviously, because I was raised as Jamaican. So, yeah, in our house, we have a lot of Jamaican food because I'm the Jamaican one and I do the most of the cooking. But 
we might have a, a curry chicken um, or a curry mutton with jollof rice on the side and obviously plantain. We call it plantain. They call it plantains. I, it's plantain for me. <laughs> um, but we, we can't speak about Nigeria and Jamaica without talking about the, the plantain, plantain issue. Um, but yeah, like food, music. My daughter has, I think, a very rich cultural experience. She speaks a bit of Pato, but she also speaks and understands um, Yoruba, which is my husband's language, as well yeah. as Pidgin, which is the, the kind of Patua version, I, I guess, that Nigerians speak. So, right. yeah, it's a it's an amalgamation of both cultures. Then you add in the British bit. So with our dinner on a Sunday, we may have the jollof rice, we may have the uh, curry mutton, but then we might also have Yorkshire puddings, which is something that is very British. Do, do you guys ever have the jollof rice debates? Who, who Where the... Get the oh no! Best it's job. obviously Nigerians make the best jollof. <laughs> it's just a given. If we're gonna, the debate that we have is which is better, jollof rice or rice and peas. And Look. if I'm honest, and Jamaicans don't hate me, I have to say jollof rice because you can eat jollof rice just on its own. Uh-huh. Whereas I feel like with rice and peas, you have to eat it with something. So yeah, that's the debate that we have. Okay, well, I I can see that. I can see that. So now, how did how did Jamaicans get to the UK? Give me that story. So the Windrush, it was during the Windrush period. So Jamaica was a colony of the United Kingdom. So the Queen was the head of state. In fact, I think the Queen still is the head of state. So a lot of Jamaicans were under the impression that England was the mother country. And after the war, um, Second World War, England needed to rebuild. They didn't have enough bodies. So they put a call out to all of their colonial countries and said, we want you to come over and help rebuild. So a lot of Jamaicans heard that call, my grandparents included, and thought that the streets were lined with gold and decided to make that boat trip over here. Um, The streets weren't lined with gold. They were lined with snow and racism, which they very quickly worked out. Mm. Signs in the windows saying no Irish, no dogs, no blacks is what greeted them. But many of them stuck it out and here have been here 60, 70 years and have created strong Caribbean communities. So where I live in Birmingham, which is about a two and a half hour drive outside London, there's a very strong Caribbean community that is very much rooted in Jamaican culture. There's other areas in the in the country that different countries are more prevalent. So I know up north there's places that are very heavily St. Kitts, um, St. Lucia, some of the smaller islands, but mm-hmm. Jamaicans get everywhere, right? So of course we're... Yeah. We're predominantly we're predominantly everywhere else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now let's talk about your entrepreneurial journey because I see that you've started several businesses throughout the course of your your lifetime. Now, like, tell me about your your entrepreneurship journey. Like, how did you get into entrepreneurship, and and what was that journey like for you? So I would say that I've always demonstrated entrepreneurial qualities from a very young age. So. In school, I remember getting into trouble because I used to charge my friends to braid their hair and I'd braid their hair in class. And the teachers would say, obviously, this is not appropriate what you're doing. But this is my job. I've got paid. (laughs) So I would braid hair. Um, I remember negotiating. I didn't ever get pocket money. Um, I remember negotiating with my dad to get me to Hoover his car on a weekend so I could get paid for that. So I've always kind of had some level of entrepreneurial spirit that was obvious to see. And then... I went to university with this idea of being this media mogul. I studied media and communications, wanted to be the UK's version of Oprah and finished university and realised in order to do that, I would need to move to London. And I didn't want to move to London. Too big of a city and I just wasn't really 
wasn't trying to do that. And also because I heard that to get into media in London, you'd have to be a runner and make teas and coffees for people. And I, I wasn't trying to do that either because like, I'm not a servant. Like, why would I do that? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I decided to stay in, in Birmingham where I still live now um, and tried to do the employment thing and realized very quickly that wasn't for me either. So within the kind of 12 months after graduation, I hopped from job to job. I don't think I ever stayed in one job for more than three months. So in that period, I had about six different jobs and quit them. Yeah. And quit for a variety of different reasons, mainly because I wanted to do what I wanted to do. So I remember being in a marketing job and wanting to go for my lunch at a particular time. And the manager saying, well, no, we don't go to lunch at that time. We go to lunch at this time. And I'm like, but I'm not hungry at that time. I'm hungry at this time. So why can't I go to lunch at this time? And I remember just being so confused as to why, how does this make sense? Surely I should just be able to eat when I want to eat. Um, and I also remember being told to wear high heeled shoes. I never wore high heeled shoes. I still don't really, cause I've got flat feet and it hurts. Right. Being forced to wear these uncomfortable shoes and saying, actually, no, I'm not doing this. And literally I just kept coming to that same point. No, I'm not doing this. And I'm a a very big believer. And I think it's obvious through how my life has gone that if you don't like something, change it. Yeah. So I changed it. I would quit. Continued doing that for a little while until I heard about a business startup program, which I joined. And actually to track back, when I was at university, I'd got into event management. In in fact, even before university, we call it college. I think, I don't know what you guys call it, but the end of high school, I'd say. I think we call it, it's the same thing for us. College and university is the end of high school for us, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So when I was about 16, 17, I started doing events for a local organization. Then I went to university, set up the African Caribbean Society, started doing events through the African Caribbean Society, realized I was really good at events and really good at sponsorship. So um, I remember with some of the events that we did, I was able to get sponsorship from HMV. And I don't know, did you guys have Alizé? over there the drink yeah we had alizé it was popular for like uh i want to say in the 90s when uh at the height of hip-hop in the 90s alizé was very popular oh it was it was a little later for us it was the early early 2000s and i remember alizé i got alizé to sponsor us and they sent crates upon crates upon crates of alizé i kept a few for myself so i was really good at that so when i decided to do the um, business startup program after university the idea was to create a event management stroke youth development company. So I really wanted to provide opportunities for young people from disadvantaged backgrounds like mine, because I'd come grown up in a, a really inner city, what you'd call deprived area. Mm-hmm. And I felt that I had a lot of talent, both musically, but also just generally, like I, I was good at things, um, but there wasn't really many outlets or opportunities. So I set up this business with three friends out, um, out of university. And within the first 12 months, all three of the friends had left and I was the last man standing. You can make Mm -hmm. of that what you will, but I would say it's because I was the only one that had the heart and passion for business. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I continued with the business, um, was focusing on event management and so event management, like celebration events, and then Mm -hmm. providing training and development opportunities for disadvantaged young people who would then perform or help to co-create the events. And that's how the business model was supposed to work. So it was like a non-profit, which, well, I, I say for more than profit and managed to grow that business to eight members of staff, uh, turning over six figures, but then realized quite quickly that the business model was not sustainable because mm-hmm. we were we were building the business, not focusing on getting 
uh, event management contracts to pay us to do the training, but actually we were getting funded to do the training from a variety of different funding bodies. I realized yeah. I was really good in the same way that I'd been good at getting sponsorship. I had a really, I always used to say I've got the magic pen because mm -hmm. I was able to write funding applications and get yeses after yeses after yeses. So within uh, maybe like an 18 month timeframe, I'd raised a quarter of a million pounds of funding for the business, which then enabled me to grow, get my office and do a variety of different things. Was winning winning awards left, right and centre. There was a period where I was winning an award like multiple times a month. Wow, you really did um, have the magic pen. Yeah, I was doing really well. I was doing speaking engagements. Um, I was being featured in the media. I was on the TV, um, the BBC radio, which is really big over here. They featured me in a, a series. So I was living the dream essentially. And then I wasn't. <laughs> so different things started to happen. And I realized that we weren't generating enough income. When programs and projects would finish and the funding finished, then I would lose a member of staff. So seeing that that was happening i then started to look at how do i refine the business model uh went on an investment program well no first i went on a growth program with goldman sachs Ten Thousand small businesses mm -hmm. a program that i don't think I, I had the credentials for but i think they just appreciated my kind of vitality and i think i talked a good game so they let me on realize yeah, if you if you wrote an application being that you had the magic pen you probably wrote yourself in there yeah i did <laughs> That's pretty much what happened. Um, and then realized from off the back of that, I needed some investment, went on an investment program, secured investment for the business, a six figure investment that was being match funded. Well, it was five figure investment that was match funded by the investment program themselves and a local council, which then would have le led to a six figure like investment in the overall. And then the investors pulled out and said, actually, come back in six months when you've hit this sales goal. Mm -hmm. And at that point I was heavily pregnant. I still say to this day that I think it was because I was pregnant, but I can't prove it. So yeah. <laughs> whatever. Um, but also my mum was in intensive care in another city. So I was having to be kind of up and down the motorway visiting her. And I had one member of staff at this point. So I'd gone from eight members of staff to one member of staff. So I knew that I wasn't going to be able to hit the revenue target and then made the decision, actually, maybe I need to close this business. And then randomly this guy appears. Everybody was asked where he came from and I don't really have a definitive answer. I don't know. But he said he was looking for a business like mine that had the track record that mine did. And he purchased the business off me. Um, and that gave me kind of a bit of breathing space whilst I had the baby to kind of regroup and work out what I wanted to do. In the middle of that, I got married. As I said previously, my husband was Nigerian, found lots of obstacles when trying to plan our wedding and realized that there was a, a huge gap in the market for wedding planners to support cross-cultural uh, marriages. So I set up a business a couple of years after starting the first one and was doing that. But at the point that I sold the first business, my business partner brought me out of the second business because I realized actually, I've got this newborn baby. Do I want to go to wedding fairs and weddings every weekend? No, I don't. So I chose not to do that. So I had the baby in July, sold the business and my business partner brought me out of the other business in the August and started my MBA in the September and pretty much did that. Kind of dropped off out of mainstream society for a little bit. I had built up quite a lot of social capital, as I said, doing speaking engagements and stuff. And I just stopped everything to focus on studying and motherhood. And then probably a year into that, decided actually enough is enough. I need to stop sitting around, get up and do something. And actually it was a friend of mine who asked me to start doing a podcast with him, the 5% club. So we, he gave me the challenge of reading a book a week for a year. 
So we would read the book and then we'd do a podcast on a Sunday afternoon reviewing the book. And there were two key books that we read that I think really has pushed me down this trajectory. One was Millionaire Fastlane or Fastlane Millionaire by MJ DeMarco. And the other one was The E-Myth Revisited by Michael E. Gerber. And read those two books, completely changed my whole perspective. And then I said, right, I know what I want to do. I want to do business support. I want to create a business support business focusing on helping businesses to be sustainable, to be profitable and to grow without there being a a reliance on the founder. So taking all of my experience of putting my businesses, uh, MBA, what I'd learned on the MBA, um, I'd also done a master's in enterprise somewhere in there and all of the other programs, the investment program, the Goldman Sachs program to really then create something that I felt provided a full 360 degree support for entrepreneurs. So initially it was for female entrepreneurs specifically, and I initially launched as Genus Enterprise Consultant, but then I relaunched and rebranded in 2019 under the name She's the Boss. Uh, I had started my She's the Boss podcast, which was by accident. I started to do some research for the business plan whilst on the MBA, doing interviews with female entrepreneurs and realized probably after the second one, oh, this is actually quite interesting. And maybe people would want to hear this. So launched the She's the Boss podcast. Mm-hmm. By 2019, everybody was calling me She's the Boss. So I said, why am I still called Genius Enterprise Consultant? So I changed the business name to She's the Boss International because the idea is to also work with international clients. I love that. And that's where I am now. <laughs> Ah, that 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 is quite the journey, and I love your sense of resiliency. Uh, when you said the the part in the story where I don't know where the man came from, I was like, I know where he came from. It was God, divine intervention, whatever you believe in. Mm-hmm. A past was created for you because your work was not done yet. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, <laughs> So I, too, in my journey uh, in entrepreneurship, I've I've worked with underserved youth to kind of create jobs, career opportunities and workforce development. I've had also the pleasure of working with adults as well. And one thing that often stumps people is, you know, the, the start and they see other people, successful people like us, and they think we automatically had this great successful start that they didn't have. And that's usually not true. So I always like to ask uh, this question to my guest is, what was your first job? And what was some lessons you learned in your first job? So my first job was for my, working at McDonald's. Such a cliche, because I feel like, but I feel like it's a good cliche, right? Because when you hear these big super entrepreneurs that are running, like the Richard Bransons, you normally hear them say stuff like that, right? So I'm hoping that that means it's the the journey that is it's the journey to, yeah so that i'm able to tell a good story when i'm a billionaire like i started working in mcdonald's um, but yeah <laughs> it was purely accidental a friend of mine said oh i've got an interview at mcdonald's will you come with me doesn't really make sense why i was there but i went and in the middle of the interview i could see her beckoning me to come over i went over and the lady who was interviewing her offered me a job i said i don't want the job thank you because I wasn't interested in working at that point. Um, but my friend, knowing that I didn't want the job, went and told my mom. And my mom mm-hmm. forced me to take up the position because she clearly thought that I needed to learn some work ethic. And worked there for a couple of weeks. And I very clearly remember the manager. I don't remember what the manager looks like. I don't remember if it was a man or a woman. I just remember the manager coming to me with a plunger and a mop bucket and telling me that there was a blockage in the toilet and that I had to go and sort it out and I remember it was one of those like in the movie of my life <laughs> this is going to be such a pivotal moment where everything slows down and you know when you hear that talking that's going to be me saying absolutely not I quit because I was just like there is no way in this world 
that I am going to be unblocking a toilet. Like, I'm not, <laughs> what is this about? And I quit. And that was the first, like my first kind of working position. And pretty much that was a, the state of things to come. So every job that I've had subsequently, which is not that many, um, it's been a situation where something has been asked of me that I didn't agree with, I didn't want to do, or I've asked something that has been rejected and I've said, actually, no, um, I'm not doing that. So I'm a big believer of, the, of this idea of if, you, if you're not happy with something, change it. And I have continued to do that throughout my life. Yeah, and that's why you're the boss. <laughs> so, so now um, 2020 has been a, a crazy year. And what I hear from a lot of entrepreneurs or business people that it's also been their best year in business. Why do you think 2020 has been so successful in business? And, and how has it been in your business? How has 2020 treated you in business? 2020 has been my best year yet. Um, uh-huh. Although I feel like 2021 is actually going to be my best year yet because January and February of 2021 have already been my best January and February yet. And I think there's a variety of reasons for that. I think one reason is during any kind of time of crisis, so we can look back and see in the recession of 2008, so many businesses were born out of that. And I think it's because when people see chaos and confusion, that's when people really sit down and start to look at ideas and how can they be more innovative. But also people are seeing that there's no such thing as job security now. So whereas before I might have clients that they've got their job and then they want me to help them with their side hustle. Now it's actually, I need this side hustle to be the main job because the jobs are not secure. And therefore from a kind of business support perspective, I feel like generally the business support space has seen a lot of growth because people are starting to realize, actually, I should be dictating my own future. I shouldn't be waiting on somebody else to say yes or no, you can. So that's one thing. The other thing is boredom, boredom and not having things to do. So for me personally, before the whole lockdown thing, on a week to week basis, I know particularly on a Saturday, Saturday would come, I'd get up and I'd be out and about doing whatever. Nothing in particular, visiting people, going to the cinema, going out to eat, walking around. We've not been able to do that for a year, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So in the time that was normally filled with just general being out and around stuff, what what many people have done is filled that with business activity. So that's what I've done. So now on a Saturday from 10 to 12, I normally have a client meeting, spend some time with my daughter afterwards. And then in the afternoon, I'll do some more work. All of that extra work has led to extra outcomes. And for me, that's why I think I've seen, well, those two reasons are why I personally have seen a big kind of uptake in my services. I got my website launched um, this year, but that was because last year I was really sitting down and working out what I wanted and I was able to spend the time to do that. So, yeah, I think it's a combination of multiple factors, to be honest. Yeah, I, I can attest to that because this podcast that you're on now was time sitting, planning and organizing last year. Uh, after people said, oh, you should start a podcast. And then I finally came around to the idea. And I was like, you know what? I should start a podcast that really highlights, you know, black entrepreneurship and, and just uh, amazing people in the nonprofit or the art space, just creating things and allow us to kind of share our stories and tell our stories. Cause so many of those stories are not being told and mm-hmm. this could be the blueprint or the inspiration to somebody out there who, who needs it. With that being said, I, I remember having a, a heated debate and discussion on Clubhouse probably, I want to say a month or two ago with a, a good friend of mine. And we were talking about uh, black women in business. And there was this study or this, the, that was done and there was data around the study how 
black women are just crushing it in entrepreneurship and they are the highest leaders in entrepreneurship over the past five years, higher than any group or other race of people and really surpassing black men by a, a very wide margin. And so when you were talking about jobs security, I imagine that's one of the things that's, that sets in place for that growth in entrepreneurship. But what would you say is the the leading reason why, you know, specifically black women are, are so high up the echelon in starting their own businesses and doing their own thing? I think there's a, a variety of reasons. One of them, I think, is because as women and black women, we have to deal with two issues. So we deal with racism and we deal with sexism within the workplace. So what does that mean? It means that often we can be overlooked for opportunities for promotions um, whilst our counterparts are given those opportunities for being half as good as us. We have to work, and this is such a cliche, but it's true. Often we have to work twice as hard to be given the same level of respect or opportunity as white women and even more so white men. And therefore, for a lot of women, black women, it is this idea of, do I want to stay here where I'm possibly not wanted and can't get any further? And I have all of these skills, all of this education, all of this experience, but it's not going to be valued. Or do I go it alone and, and work this out for myself in an environment that is going to be much more conducive, where I'm not going to have to conform, change how I wear my hair, um, change how I speak, change how I, even what I take in for lunch, because I know this is something that I've heard so many <laughs> Black people generally say, like, it takes food to work and, oh, what's that? So a lot of people have chosen, actually, I'm going to step away from that. Um, also, Black women who are mothers who have realised that actually the working world isn't, again, conducive to, to motherhood. We're, we're not necessarily supported in the same way. And, and sometimes um, having a child is seen as an opportunity for organisations to continue to push you out when you're already being pushed out. So again, rather than be pushed out, I'm just going to step out and, and do my own thing. And I think that as Black women often as well, we have been raised in situations that have forced us to have kind of a hustle mentality. We, we take very small things and turn them into amazing things. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens within our careers. So we have this experience. We've worked out how to hustle. So I've already said, for example, I used to charge people to braid hair at school. I think there's something inherent with us, within us, because of a lot of the time the start that we've had in life has facilitated um, our entrepreneurial traits. Mm -hmm. And then later in life, when kind of the systems stop us from reaching our, our true capabilities, we decide mm -hmm. to just, okay, let me go and do it myself because I know I can. And I think that's really important. Yeah, and I think that's really important, too, um, when you talk about the inherent systems controlling the narrative of, you know, what what success looks like, not only just for black people, but uh, as as community as a whole. Now, the election of a black woman as a vice president was a big deal for me and my family as I'm raising a, a young black queen. And I, I'm not sure what the effect was like in the UK, but I'm thinking for me, it was it, there was some power and some truth to be held in that, or some inspiration, and in seeing just the young Amanda Gorman just do that amazing poem that she killed it, and then on, on top of that, seeing uh, a woman of color, a black woman, taking such a, a powerful leadership role. What was that experience like for you? And, and how do you think, if you reflect on that, that how does that seeing that affect you know black women in the UK? If there's if there's any. Yeah, I think for, for us over here, whilst we're not directly impacted, like she's not obviously presiding on over policy related to us, but we also are looking outwardly at the world and saying, 
there's black women in different places that are really making power moves and that in every respect is inspirational it's motivational so whilst i'm not personally trying to aspire to be the vice president because obviously i don't live in america so i can't but it could make me stop and think actually maybe i could become a politician i won't <laughs> for a variety of reasons but mm -hmm. there's other black women that may be looking at her and saying actually we never thought that was going to happen because we didn't and as much as we're black women over here are obviously not living in america we still look to america to kind of gauge particularly from a racial perspective like where we are at as a, a western society and for us seeing Barack Obama, for example, become the president was a big deal, but it's a black man, right? So, but it's still a black person. And that is powerful because we over here would have sworn that's never going to happen in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. So now to see a black woman, a Jamaican nonetheless, I'm just going to drop that in there, <laughs> become the vice president. Yeah, like that's really something that we probably never would have predicted would happen. And I think it's a beautiful thing. Whether she has any specific impact on black people, um, in terms of policies or whatever, like, I don't know how the political sphere works, but if she exacts any change is a, a wholly different conversation. But just as a figurehead to say, look at the levels that black people can reach. Um, I think, yeah, this have, I think that will have a powerful impact on people globally, not just black women in the UK or in, in the States. Yeah. And, and, and I, I can attest to that because I remember growing up, um, you know, as a, when Obama came into president presidency uh, before Obama, I never thought in my lifetime I would see a black president. And I remember people saying, you could be anything you want to be if you grow up. And if, if I said, well, I want to be president, like, well, you know, you know, maybe not president, <laughs> son, <laughs> but, but you could be anything else you want to be in this world. <laughs> and then we got a black president. Now, uh, yesterday I was in a, a, a dialogue where we got into a, a great discussion and debate in this room where we talked about what is power and what is what does it truly mean to have power and what does power mean? And in that conversation, we started the context. When we look at power and we see the current situation and climate, we got Kamala vice president. Do we does she really have power or is is that power or is it more symbolism, right? Like is that power going to be channeled down to to the people and like what are we looking at here and how does this really show up and reflect in our society? What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a combination of the two things. So I know that there was some criticism from the black community in regards to Obama and saying he was just a symbol um, rather than being able to exact any sort of real change when it came to black people specifically. I haven't studied his policies to be able to say yes or no, but if let's just say that is true, whilst he may not have done anything specifically in terms of his policies, him being the leader of America would have done something to the black people looking up and saying, as you just said, I can actually do that. And if even if it's not that, there's so many things that now are within reach that potentially weren't in reach before. So the same with the vice president. Whilst I don't know if she's going to do anything specific from a power perspective for black people, and maybe some people would say it's just a symbol, but that symbol is powerful because seeing her in that position, we don't know the amount of black women and black girls that are gonna look up and see that symbol who are now going to go and do something great. That in itself is power. So the symbol may not, her role may not be powerful in itself, although I would hope that it would be. But even if she does nothing, 
for Black people specifically through her post, this mere fact that she's in that post does something by the inspiration that it causes, by the motivation that it might create, by the doors that might now be opened, by the doors that might be kicked down now, because actually Mm -hmm. she's made it all the way up there. This door can't be closed to me anymore. It's time to kick the door down and I'm going in, whatever they say. And that is powerful. That is powerful. The inspired generation of new wave of leadership and people kicking down doors and saying, no, we're no longer going to, that this this standard is no longer acceptable for us. Another glass, as they say, glass ceiling shattered, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, for All sure. Right. All right. So you've had a, an incredible journey um, following the, the story of starting a business while pregnant, selling, taking care of your mom. And you've had a lot of life lessons. What would you say, what was one good lesson life has taught you? through your journey what's one good lesson life has taught you so i'm going to cheat a little bit bit and and instead of saying i lesson i'm going to say the motto that i live by which i'd say encompasses all of the lessons that i've learned and that's think big take action keep pushing so the think big part is really about and i think this is important for black people generally because i think well i think from my research i found that people of color and black people specifically are disproportionately impacted by imposter syndrome and therefore this idea of thinking big often we have this this kind of issue that we can't dream big because it's not going to happen for us we have to the bigger you think the further you can get i really love that phrase if you aim for the moon you'll reach the stars mm-hmm. the problem of problem that i think so many of us face is we're reaching for the top of the roof and we're only getting to the front door we need to be aiming for the moon and then we might get to the stars and everything that i've done i've done with this idea that i'm going to be the best at it i am going to do the best at it and nobody's going to be able to stop me or tell me that i can't i remember a couple of years ago when i was doing my mba the one of the lecturers asked me in front of the class daniela where do you expect to see yourself in five years and i said rich and he started hysterically <laughs> laughing like it was the funniest joke that he'd ever heard and i wasn't joking and he repeated the question and i repeated my answer and for him it was just so ludicrous to think that someone in his class could ever be rich and whilst i'm not there yet i've still got a couple of years before it's the five years i wholeheartedly believe i'm going to be there and mm-hmm. in my pursuit of trying to be there well am i going to become a millionaire maybe but even if i don't i'm going to do better than whatever he thought i was going to do because of where i'm striving to get to so think big is really important take action is the next thing in every area that i've managed to achieve success it's not just because i've dreamed of it it's because i've got up and i've done it and consistently done it even in the face of adversity and even in the face of people telling me i shouldn't i've done it anyway i know that um when i started my first business i remember my mom was just like why don't you get a job this is ridiculous get a job i did my master's in enterprise whilst um in the first early stages of that first business so for my mom she was when i finished and i wasn't still generating that much money she was like you've got two degrees imagine how much of a salary you could get just go and get a job and i'm just like no i'm going to continue doing this and it's going to come to fruition and i very clearly remember being at an award ceremony massive award ceremony like over a thousand people at this huge venue and my mom came and my husband came he wasn't my husband yet but is now um, and was at a table and they announced that I had won this award it was the young professional of the year entrepreneur of the year and my mom jumped up pushed my husband out of the way to give me this big hug and was saying to everyone like oh my gosh I'm so proud of her and I remember thinking but you told me not to do this <laughs> like, what <laughs> what's going on here and you said don't do it um but i couldn't even in the face of my mom consistently telling me not to do it me taking action even led her 
to have to take back her words. So keep take keep on taking action. But then finally, keep pushing. And this, would, I would say, probably is the, the main lesson. I've had so many negative experiences. I'm very intentional about sharing a lot of my negative experiences because I think there's so many entrepreneurs out here that's talking about all the good stuff. Oh, I won this award. I made this money and blah, blah, blah. And that's great. But actually, if you're out here trucking and you're trying to take action and bad things are happening to you, do you really want to hear about this other entrepreneur that's turned over seven figures and mm-hmm. and nothing ever bad happened to them. Well, I've had somebody sue me for £30,000. Um, I've had somebody steal my intellectual property. I've had, um, well, I've had several people steal my intellectual property, which is why I'm now an intellectual property specialist. Well, that's, that's <laughs> I, I went and got my certification from the intellect, intellectual property office because I said no one's doing that to me again. Um, I've had so many obstacles in my path and actually even the whole process of me selling the business. I didn't sell the business by choice. It was by force, essentially. I didn't want to do it. And I went through a period of grieving and it wasn't a pleasant experience. But actually looking back, it was the experience that I needed to set me on the path of walking the purpose that I'm walking now. Like right now, as as corny as it might sound, I'm living my best life. I wake up every day and I'm doing something that brings me joy, that I'm passionate about, that makes a difference in the lives of the people that I work with. That couldn't have happened if I had stopped pushing then. And in pushing through that, although I was in this wilderness space for a little while, I've been able to use all of those experiences to provide support from a first-hand experience to my clients. I'm not a career consultant. It's just, a, yes, I went to university and I know that you need to do a SWOT analysis and that's great. <laughs> I can I can do that. Like I can do it because I have, and then now I have three degrees, two of them are business specific. So I can do that. But I can also say that person needs to be fired because I recognize that this is what happens when somebody's going down that route because I've been there. And when you're crying because something didn't happen in your business, I can relate because I've been there crying and pulling out my hair too. So um, really keep pushing. You're going to face obstacles, but you need to to keep pushing through them. And, and I love that phrase and I'm, I'm really terrible with phrases, but I think it's something about your next big success is on the other side of the no or something like that. I can't remember. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like yeah. if you if you stop pushing today, your breakthrough could be tomorrow. That's what it is. And you're missing the breakthrough because you just gave up a day too, too early. But that also doesn't mean keep pushing and flogging a dead horse. No, we don't do that either. But we pivot, we regroup, we learn from our mistakes and we keep pushing on in what other direction we decide to go in. Yeah. And I think that's the key thing that people have to learn in business. Like um, you learn from your mistakes and you pivot. Uh, some people, they, they get so passionate or so attached or married to an idea. They keep, you know, plucking that dead horse and just keep going down that rabbit hole until it's too late. Now, I know I got a couple degrees as well, and you got a couple degrees. And I think it's just something about in Jamaican, Nigerian culture, uh, our parents are like, you're going to get your education, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yes, and for sure. To them, that's, that's the way out and, and get this good job, make six figures. When I tell my, my dad that, hey, you know, I got my degrees and this good job. I'm about to process it. And I think I'm, I'm going to start make this transition into entrepreneurship. What? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> right mm-hmm. it's, it's yes. so scary you can't do that no you can't do that i can do it right i remember having this conversation earlier this year where he, was, he goes well don't you think you know your education prepare you to be successful and, and do the things that you're doing today i had this this thing i was like you know education helped me be dis- disciplined but the people that i'm talking to at now as far as business people that made millions 
none of their playbook and strategies were from university that I learned. And now that I think about it, I don't know any university professor that taught business that has a million dollar business or company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there was some decorum there that I got from university <laughs> that uh, allowed me to to learn the language, the vernacular, and the discipline. But the actual success part comes from the doing, the taking action, connecting with people who've already done it, at least to me. Um, do, yeah. you have, do you find that to be true in your experience? Um, I'm not going to talk bad about university because I loved it. It was the greatest time of my life <laughs> <laughs> ever. But... <laughs> But I hear you. But this is also where I make the distinction between the career coach and me. And this is why I think I'm good at what I do, because I did go to university, but my undergrad was, I don't, I don't even really count that as anything in relation to what I'm doing now. Although I did media. So clearly my ability to speak and communicate and do that kind of thing was enhanced and supported with that degree. But my second degree, I started after I'd already started the business. So I think what makes... um I think for me, both my MBA and my master's have really helped me think of business in a different way. But I think had I done them without having the actual live active experience, I don't necessarily think it would have been particularly beneficial. I think Mm -hmm. the two things have worked together Mm -hmm. from the perspective of discipline. um, I think, yeah, definitely having deadlines and, and even my writing style. I think that's really helped in my kind of entrepreneurial career because when I'm supporting clients for me personally, for what I do, I have to write reports. I have to write strategies and stuff. So I need to understand that stuff. However, in my wedding business, was any of those things relevant? Not really. Like, no. And I also think the way I did it, where by starting the business and then adding the education on top, I think that that helped because I was able to take my education and look at where I'd made mistakes and look at it from an academic perspective and know actually doing this next time, if I did this, this and this, it would work. And it's worked. It's, it's actually worked. Um, so I, I would say university is great. But if you're trying to be a successful entrepreneur, I don't think it's essential. I think, as you said, doing it, connecting with the right people, learning. I think one of one of my biggest lessons has been through reading books. That's why I have this bookshelf behind me, because I love to read. Yeah. Um, but when I was running my first business, before I started my master's, I didn't read anything. I wasn't reading. And I think, again, we, we kind of do this hustle, hustle, hustle thing. And the reason I think that the education piece is really useful because it forces you to read, it forces you to sit down and kind of learn analytical skills and research skills, which you're not necessarily always going to get if you're just running a business because Mm -hmm. we're too busy to do that. So I don't think it's for everyone. And I agree that there's so many of these business professors that don't have a clue how business works in the real world at all. Even the fact that the men on my course said, Rich, <laughs> what do you mean? What What do you really want to do? Like, <laughs> if you really understood business, you'd understand that there is a possibility that I could be rich. If I happen around, up, upon the right service, the right products, and do my marketing correctly, there's like, I'm sure right now I'm earning more than him. Let's just put it that way. That. And for all the universities out there listening, don't come for us. Uh, we're not saying <laughs> university is bad. We're just saying there's things, there's skill sets you get from university and there's, there's skills you get from action and doing. And, uh, you know, to highlight another conversation we, I was having with the fellas on a radio show that I do this week, we are talking about, um, there's this phrase that I, I often use that uh, my uncle gave to me one time. He says, don't let school get in the way of your education. Meaning that you can literally get an education, the same education that you, you're trying to pay 
hundreds and thousands of dollars to to the university that you know over here in america that students go into debt for and they don't get the same return on their investment you can get into a course and a book maybe even come out with more of a return on your investment by paying a thousand dollars here to extract information and knowledge that you can use over here to set a six-figure business up right yeah and and so there's so many different ways for you to get knowledge these days i i would also like to to say i used to Whilst I was at university, when I, when I was running my first business for extra money, I was actually a university lecturer. So I will not say anything bad about universities because they gave me some really good money for a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what's, what's some advice uh, you would give to someone who would like to start a career in your industry? Um, get assistance and support. I think for me, having mentors around me, having coaches that really kind of guided me, um, forced me to look at the way I was thinking about things, held me accountable for doing things that I said I was going to do or things that I was scared of doing, really made a huge impact and has made a huge impact on how I approach this whole entrepreneurship thing. I remember a few years ago, one of my mentors said to me, how are you helping other people if you can't help yourself? You need to help yourself first and then you can help as many people as you want because you'll you'll be pouring from a full cup as opposed to an empty cup. And that statement that she said had such a profound impact on me that it's really changed the trajectory of everything that I do. Mm-hmm. So I think making sure that you've got the right support system around you is really key and not just relying on friends and family because friends and family are going to come at it from a, the perspective of trying to look after you and take care of you because they love you. Um, mm-hmm. And therefore, for example, in the case like my mom, my mom, doesn't she didn't want me to struggle financially. So as far as she's concerned, go and get a job. But actually going and getting a job wasn't a viable thing for me because well, as we've established, I can't hold one down. Um, but <laughs> from from her perspective, that's the thing that's going to keep me safe. Whereas my mentor is like, no, you need to make more money with your business. Like, get this business off and popping, essentially. And that's what I did. So work with people and have people around you in your circle that are really going to call you out, that are going to kind of push you to achieving your goals and not going to encourage you to consistently take the safe option. Now, how, how, how important would you say mentorship and community is, you know, starting a business or being an entrepreneur? How important is that? I think it's essential. Um, entrepreneurship is a lonely road and there's so many ups and downs. There's so many times where you might actually want to just say this is too much and having those people around that will that would encourage you, that will boost you, that will hold you up, I think is essential. So on one of my programs that I'm doing at the moment, Sprint for Growth, it's an accountability program. Um, there's a group of us. I lead it. I give them a challenge every week. One of the challenges this week for my ladies was for them to do a post on Instagram to really kind of demonstrate to everyone why they're good at what they do. Why are they the boss in their industry? Something that they were very uncomfortable with doing. I've kind of encouraged them, forced them to do it. They've done it. And one of them, she posted hers last night and she's already had two bookings for speaking engagements. That's the power of kind of having a strong network, having good mentors, having a support system. Um, it's something that she wasn't going to do. Like she, she was supposed to have done it like by, by last week and she hadn't done it. So there it's, I, f- I feel like it's essential because there's so many things that you're going to get caught up in and wrapped up in that you stop to look over there because you get tunnel visioned on where you're trying to go and actually having a fresh pair of eyes, look at things and say, have you thought about this? Have you considered that can be hugely beneficial? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I've had some official and unofficial mentors and people that surround me in business that kind of help catapult me and be more successful in all my endeavors. 
Uh, so what do you think the future has in store for your industry, specifically for when we talk to about entrepreneurship and women of, of color, black women in entrepreneurship? What does what does the future look like? Um, I think the future looks like us continuing to be pioneering and innovative and, and kind of kicking down those doors, as we've discussed. One of my key issues is the fact that black women led businesses are notoriously underfunded when it comes to investment. And as I said, I think one of the reasons I didn't get my investment was because of the fact that I was having a baby. It also might have been partly because of the fact that I'm a black woman. I'm not going to say it was, but we know mm-hmm. that black women don't get the same level of investment as any other types of people. So we need to really address that and sort that out so that then Black women are able to kind of scale at the pace and the rate that we know that they have the capability and capacity to do if given the opportunity to do so. Um, And I'm going to be out here continuing to support as many Black women in particular. I I work with people from all backgrounds and I have lots Mm -hmm. of male clients, but obviously I have a particular affinity to want to help Black female-led businesses because Mm -hmm. I am a black female. And even one of my clients at the moment, um, Neo Enterprise, they've gone from like a four-figure business to a six-figure business and looking at seven figures by next year. Nice. That makes me proud. But they've also faced some of the same challenges. So if we can sort that out, I think the the only way is up. Yeah, I I agree. And and I I second that uh, when it comes to the funding. I I, um, was part of a pitch competition with Google and Techstars probably like three years ago. And I got, that's when I I first got introduced to the VC world of venture capitalist funding and then uh, the different money that could be, you know, raised for a, a startup. And throughout my time now of, you know, being in these spaces, I realized that there is a lack of funding uh for for black businesses even when we went to get our own funding and 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 the money is not distributed the same way equally like it, it seems like they invest in the same people groups or, or or things and a small percentage even though we have a high percentage of especially black women entrepreneurs out there a small percentage is going to that group and you know uh, secretly the, the second phase of this podcast is building community and then hopefully building our own black VC funding where we say, you know, all those people that pledged during Black Lives Matter that they're going to give money. Let's put that into some type of black VC funding, black billionaires across the black diaspora, whether you're in Africa, the U.S., the U.K. Let's get together, and see how we could pull funding and resources together to invest in all of our black communities, uh, you know, global wide. So I'm going to put that out there with your your manifesto and your big goals. <laughs> in. And as you become, you know, that millionaire, that big boss millionaire, <laughs> I expect you to be in the, the black venture capitalist portfolio. <laughs> oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> For sure. So let's talk about what projects are you currently working on and where can people find you? And and tell us about that course. For those who have been hearing this, they're inspired, they want to get started. How do I start to link up, get that help, get that support, get access to your courses? Tell us, where can we go, Mm -hmm. where we can find, and what are you doing? So you can find me on my new shiny website, which I've just launched in January. I'm quite excited about it. So please visit www.she'sthebossintl.com. And I've got my brochure on there for a list of my services. I'm also on Instagram at She's the Boss UK. And I definitely do a lot of 
a lot of stuff there on a Tuesday and a Thursday. I do a live every morning. So there's lots of IGTV lessons around business, entrepreneurship. In terms of projects that I'm working on, I'm currently trying to develop um, a range of products so that people who aren't able to engage in my live training or my one-to-one -one services are still able to benefit from my experiences. So they should be launching later in the year. Um, I Every quarter from this year onwards, I'm going to be relaunching my program. So I've got the growth accelerator and sprint for growth so they'll be relaunching in april and then again in june and then i think september and november and they are all delivered online mm -hmm. group group programs one's focused on kind of accountability for growth the other one is more of a training program where we look at my model that i've developed and go through each stages of that so the visa model we look at vision innovation strategy systems and processes and accountability I also do the one-off sessions. So my favorite one that I always say everybody should start with is Vision 20. Mm. And that's working with uh, business owners. And whilst I do do some work with startups, my main kind of core focus is on businesses that are trying to grow. So businesses that may have been in operation for a year or two, generating some revenue, but really want to kind of, kind of grow at a much quicker rate. And I work with companies to map out their three-year vision, really create a compelling vision that can that they can really focus on. We create three-year goals, 12-month action plan, and then look at the strategies that we need to develop to actualize that vision. And it's a really successful service. I've had clients that I've done that with and within 12 months, or, and the fastest has been six months, mm -hmm. they've actualized that vision because I've created a roadmap for them so that they know step-by-step, step, if I do all of this, this is gonna come to reality. So they do it much quicker often than um than we initially planned for so all of those services are available on my website i also do bespoke training so if you've got a specific issue in your business particularly related to kind of staffing and stuff i can come in virtually and do training with your staff as well so there's lots of stuff um that i can support businesses with and my kind of focus for this year also is around systems and processes so many business owners are growing their businesses but they're creating nooses around their necks where they're focused on just working until they drop that's not a sustainable business mm -hmm. model the business cannot be wholly 100 percent reliant on you because if we take you out of the business there's no business left Mm -hmm. So I've created something called Build My Business, where I map out all of the uh, the processes within a business, create an operations manual, physical one and a digital one, mm -hmm. look at automations and that kind of thing. And I'm going to be creating um, an app around that as well. So I'm quite excited about that. Nice. I can't wait for that app to drop because we definitely need it in 2021. <laughs> Well, I hope so. That's what's going to get me to that rich status. <laughs> there, there you go. Ah! <laughs> well, Daniela, she's the boss. Like, what can I say? You've given us a wealth of knowledge. Don't worry if you didn't get a chance to write those links. I'm going to get all the links. I'm going to put those in the show notes uh, so that you have them and you can connect with her so that you can start to elevate your life, elevate your business, put those processes in. Uh, give, them, give them your life mantra one, one more time. Think big, take action, and keep pushing. So think big, take action, keep pushing. Danielle, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, and you. I can't wait to see you become the true boss in business and tell us how to grow in our business. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Risepreneurs Podcast. Thank you for taking the journey. Be sure to like, comment, and smash that subscribe button. And stay connected with Terrell on and off the show. Follow at Risepreneurs on all platforms. Do what you love. Love what you do. Don't chase the money. Let the money chase you. Thank <laughs> you.